So uh, this morning we're gonna, I'm going to move fast because we're going to do communion today. Um, but this, this passage was less of, less of kind of a cerebral, I've got this theological thing I want to chew on kind of a sermon and, and much more one that, that impressed itself on me physically. And uh, it started in December, so on sabbatical, and I was on crutches for three and a half weeks. It's one of the reasons I was able to read a lot. Um, and it really drove me crazy because when you're on crutches or when you can't walk, it, um, I, yeah, I mean, it just, your, your kids are getting you things and they're looking at you like, why can't you get it yourself? <laughs> or at least my kids are. Um, and and it, you feel really helpless. And when you're on sabbatical, you have all these plans of, of jogging in place so that your little Fitbit counter uh, measures a certain amount of steps or you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're going to get in shape, you're going to do this, you're going to do all these other things, and then you end up on crutches and, and you're stuck. And it was really frustrating to me. I've got about three different things wrong with my feet, my ankles, and uh, one of them uh, was, was kind of what was causing this. And I've got surgery coming up in April for my left foot and fall for my right foot. And that's why you shouldn't do dumb things on your feet when you're in your, your teenage years and your 20s. It's um, what they call it, desert orthopedics, hard living evidently. Um, but so I've kind of got that. And it was really, really frustrating um, not being able to do a lot of the things on my list. And so then this past week on Monday, um, uh, was, kids were in bed, was hanging out with Tamara and ran in to get an orange. And it was a small little orange. And I went to cut it. I didn't know Tamara. She's been sharpening the knives a lot lately. Um, but it was a small orange and I I couldn't quite, you know, get it to sit straight. So I wrapped my hand around it and, and went to cut it. And I sliced my finger down to the bone. And I've never done that before. Um, but it was 1130 at night and I didn't want to go in to see anyone. So I just, I just wrapped it uh, tight enough to where it wouldn't bleed all over the bed. And hopefully not tight enough that I'd like lose my finger, right? Um, but the next morning I went in and... and um, and it had been past the window when you're supposed to get stitches, but it, it needed something. So they did this, I'd, ne I'd never had it before, but it's called a digital block. It has nothing to do with computers. Um, it's, they take and they inject all the stuff into your finger. It swells up like a balloon and you can't feel a thing. And it lasts that way for like a day and a half. But that way they could go in and, I'm trying to make you queasy. Um, they could go in and scrub it out and then, and then sew it shut. Um, and uh, so then, I, yeah, so, so there was that. I went to the, the other doctor and ever since I've had a bout of skin cancer, like I go in every four months and they just, they, they burn all these places all over me. I think it's just so they can charge me more money. Every time they hit you, there's someone recording it. <laughs> You did it again? Okay, that's another $500. Um, but so I was kind of feeling frustrated. I was in these doctor's appointments all morning. And then I've got this big dead finger that's kind of gray. Looks like it's either mummified or it's just going to um, fall off in a day or two. And I had all of this, this work I needed to do. And I have a real manly job. It requires a lot of typing. And... And uh, emails and typing and writing, and, and I, I absolutely couldn't use my fingers. So not only could I not use it, but if I tried to type with my other fingers, 
like it kept kind of pulling on this one and it was making this part of my hand really sore. I just, I basically couldn't type. So I had to call in friends to like, hey, can you type for me? And so they looked at me like my kids looked at me in December uh, and they were like, really, um, you want me to do your email? And it was really frustrating. So I went home that night and, and um, I think it was Tamara that said to me, uh, you know, if one part of the body hurts, you know, the whole body, uh, the whole body suffers along with it. Uh, it's quoting scripture. And I thought to myself, you know what? That, that is so true. Like one part, uh, one part of the body goes and then it just throws everything off. And I was like, you know, it just makes so much sense. It, it, should, it should be preached on. So, so there you go. So that's, so that's kind of the motivation. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> And this is called the Ken Feeling Sorry for Himself Sermon. <laughs> it's the title uh, for the video. First um, Corinthians chapter 12, we're just going to read verses 25 through 27. And then we're going to look at a couple other passages along the way today uh, that have to do with the body of Christ. The body of Christ is one of several metaphors that the New Testament uses uh, for the fellowship of, of believers, the family of God, if you will, the, the body of Christ. And so the passage we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 through 27, simply says this, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So Paul here is really concerned with the idea that we find unity and that somehow that unity works itself together into something healthy. And that's why we get into this body uh, metaphor because the interdependency and interconnectedness of the body is, is what we understand is, is produce, uh, producing health. And so there should be no division. One part shouldn't be greater than the other part. All parts should kind of share equally um, and we should have equal concern for each other. Verse 26, now if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So there's no rich and poor. There is no super gifted and I don't have any talent. Uh, there is no um, I serve a lot and you're not able to serve as much. There is no I'm a man and you're a woman. Uh, there is no I'm older and you're younger. We're all a part of this body of Christ and if one of us suffers, the idea is we should be so connected organically that it necessarily puts, puts a hurting on the rest of us. Uh, the rest of us go down. Uh, we're on the couch and we're, we have to read Italian Renaissance, right? Uh, if one part goes down, the rest, of the, part, uh, the rest of the body suffers with it. And if one part is honored, if, if something happens, to one of us, um, there was an instinctive kind of applause when you heard that Kelly got engaged. Um, we want to celebrate that. It's, it's good on her, but she's a part of this community, so it's just good, and so we celebrate, and we clap. Um, if someone has an honor in this town, we want to celebrate it. Back when HD won Principal of the Year for Oregon, or Randy Jacobs 
um, medical doctor of the year. I'm sure there's a more specific title to that, but a lot of his volunteer work in this community. And there are others here that do things. And, and when one part of this body is honored, we look at it and we say, that's really cool that, that our church would be involved in this community or people from our church would be involved in this community in such a way that they'd be recognized for that work. And then, and then we all get to celebrate in that. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Now here's Kind of the crazy thing is it doesn't always work like that. It ends up kind of more on the dysfunctional side. And I think that it's because we have this latent corporate model of church that's crept in, I think, in, in modern culture. And certainly when, when we've all become so mobile with cars and so we can kind of go to different places, go to greater distances, we can kind of pick and choose our church rather than just having kind of the traditional neighborhood, uh, neighborhood church um, that we go to because that's where we live, that's where the horse and buggy takes us. And you end up with something really interesting where here's me, I'm gonna draw slower because evidently last time either I was drawn too fast or if you listen to Kip, it was just because he wasn't in the service. Um, is he in the service even now? Kip jokes aren't as fun when Kip's not here. To, um, so you have, you have this person here and you have this interesting thing that we would call the church. In this instance, let's just call it Antioch. There is no Antioch per se. It's, it's a... It's a name, it's a hook, it's a, it's a way of, of kind of talking about a group of people. It's, it's a label, if you will. The label isn't the garment. The label isn't the car, the make of the car is not the car. It's just simply a way of us looking at that, that entity, that thing, and going, this is, this is how we know it by. This is how we call it. This is how we name it. This is what it belongs to. It's either foreign made or American made. We either can trust it or we can't. Like, but, but the label is, is kind of just this umbrella thing, this, this weird kind of corporate entity. Now what happens typically in the church today is this, this person um, starts to suffer. Something goes wrong with somebody and they, they have a need, um, they need people to come take care of them, they need uh, people to be there, they're, they're suffering. And nothing really happens, and then there's kind of this look at the corporate entity and says, um, this church isn't meeting my needs. Um, that corporate entity, that, that brand mark, um, that label isn't meeting my needs, they don't care about people. Now this, this I, could, I could erase uh, the Antioch and put it in any other church in America. This is kind of the normal pattern is if, if you get a disconnected person that, that attends or has attended a church and then if their needs aren't met or their, their suffering isn't, isn't received in, in a certain way, they project that onto the corporate entity and the corporate entity is somehow a, a bad and they don't care about people. This isn't what Paul's talking about. It's not what he envisions. What Paul envisions with this interconnectedness of the body, that if one part suffers, every part suffers, is that we've got these overlapping rings. And I'm supposed to be careful with geometric shapes, but I think I'll be okay here. Um, that we got all these interconnected 
rings. This is a community. You have in individuals and families and small groups and neighborhood groups and friends that carpool to Little League and um, singles that go out on Friday nights and Saturday nights or whatever it might be. Um, that wasn't... <laughs> um, and, uh, and so it's, it's interconnected. It's a body. You, you, can't, you can't have something happen to this part of the body that doesn't also affect all these overlapping parts here. You see how that, that works? So the gal that's in the, the women's group, when she has a child or when she has a surgery, um, the, the women in the women's group, they know to start a meal train. Or, or to send emails or Facebook notes, we're praying for you, we're thinking about you. Or when uh, Pete Kelly's wife goes to uh, Hawaii to help a sister-in-law with a baby, um, that there's people, and I don't know if anyone's helping Pete, actually, it's a bad example. Um, <laughs> but if we, if we had known, we'd be helping him with meals, um, someone would be keeping his schedule, um, somebody would be helping him with a lot of different things. But, but when you're connected, uh, in, in the body of Christ with relationships, you're, you're there. I've, I've heard of the Empty Nesters group um, fixing cars, taking up collections so that they can repair things for either single moms or widows or other people that need things in this church. By the way, the Empty Nesters group does a ton of things in this community, uh, if you don't know that. It's, it's amazing. Um, and, and so you, you have this kind of thing like, I, I have to move. Like my house, I rent, my house got sold and they only gave me this amount of time to move and it's right in the middle of my busy season with work or you know, I've got a bad ankle, who's gonna help me move? Well, my small group or the men's, uh, the men that meet me for breakfast or, or whatever it might be, uh, they somehow show up with trucks and they help us move. Because one part of the body and what that need is speaks to the rest of the body. Do you see how that works? And so when the body is the body of Christ, when we truly reflect what, what was envisioned for us, that we're, we're in relationship, we don't attend the same place, we don't go to the same brand mark, we're in relationship. We know people and we are known that when something happens to us, it affects, there's a ripple and it affects other people and then somehow that gets taken into account in the community life. And if that's not there, what happens, if, if we haven't invested the time, if we haven't uh, joined different things, if we haven't served so that we know the names of other people and they know us, or we don't have someone to reach out to, if we just go back to this thing where it's me and this corporate entity um, that somehow um, there's nothing, there's no chain. All I have is a web page. Um, or, I, or I email the staff, and in a dysfunctional church, by the way, um, what happens is whenever there's an, a need, instead of going to relationships, it all goes to the staff. And then the staff ends up spending all of their time trying to figure out how they are going to meet the needs of, of a whole lot of people beyond what uh, they're capable of doing. And what's worse than that is when we're doing the meeting of needs, which is a value in the church, we end up neglecting something else that the book of Acts says is a greater value in the church. 
certainly for, for pastors. So if we go to the book of Acts, you see this fascinating story where there was a lot of needs and, and the money that was being dispersed to needy people or to widows was somehow not working right. It was unjust. So the early church, which is giving money to people, is doing it in an unfair way, an unjust way. Well, who was doing it? Maybe nobody, just the system was broke. Who knows, right? But that's the early church and it's, it's broken. So it comes to the apostles and you think the apostles are gonna me immediately jump in and fix it. Why? How in the world can the first church that, that's taking care of uh, widows get it wrong? I mean, that's a, that's a blight on their record. It's like this urgent thing at the foundation of, of the Christian church that you have this unjust thing happening with, with taking care of the poor and the needy. And you want to know what their response was? Um, that's a big deal, and it's really important. So let's find very capable people, and let's try and raise those people up to go address that, because it, it matters. But we, the apostles, um, we have to keep preaching and teaching. That's our role. That's our job. Like, we can't leave this office and putting time and energy into doing this to go and do this, which there's probably other people that are capable of, of doing um, to be involved with. Um, Pete Kelly or Ken Weitzma have a responsibility to equip the church for work of, of ministry and to be about theology and the preaching and teaching of the church and to be raising up and discipling leaders and we're, we're supposed to be equipping um, the saints for the work of ministry. And so if all the emails are coming to Pete and Ken and, and we're, we're running over here to try and fix the, the meeting of needs week after week after week and putting less and less time into this, guess what we're doing? We're allowing the church body to become dysfunctional because we're getting out of position. We're also, by doing that, not allowing the church to grow into a healthy expression where say the empty nesters group is able to meet the needs of other people and that the beautiful kind of um, organic dynamic thing that happens there is no longer gonna happen because we're short circuiting it every time. Does that make sense? So the idea here is that we're, we're in community. The idea here is that if you go to church on a Sunday morning, that it's a very, very good thing but that that's the beginning of the Christian week and that you should be looking to either serve, everyone should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. You've been given gifts that can serve the body and witness to the world. And so everybody should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. And somehow in ministering in the church, you're ministering alongside other people. That's what koinonia or fellowship means. And that's where relationship comes from. And if you stumble when you're running alongside somebody, they're there to pick you up um, or join a small group. Or one of the easiest ways to jump into community at Antioch is just to go to one of the bread and wine dinners. By the way, if you want to mark your calendar, you're going to hear more about it next week. But the next round of bread and wine dinners are the first two Sundays in March. And those are just simply a way to end up in a house of somebody in Antioch with uh, four or five other couples or families and you share a meal and you get to hear each other's stories and hearing each other's stories, spending time together is really the first step in beginning to build relationship. Um, and by the way, we talk a lot about 
quality time, and, and I was taught a, a long time ago, ironically, by Linda Van Voorst's dad. Um, I knew Linda when she was in junior high. She's like the only person, she's not in here, I don't think, but um, she's the only person I can say, like, I knew her when. You guys aren't following me. <laughs> when I grew up, there was always older people that said, oh, I knew him when. I, you guys don't think that's cool at all. Um, <laughs> Linda's dad said something, and I never forgot it, but he says, uh, quality time is something that, hap- that, you don't, that often you don't plan for. It's something that happens in the midst of quantity time. Um, if you want quality time, plan for quantity time and, and let quality time happen. Uh, it's really hard for me to run to Tamara and say, I really want quality time with you. I want you to feel loved. I want you to feel uh, like we're connecting, like we're on the same page. And I've got time today from 519 to 548. And we are gonna, we are gonna, we are gonna really just get some quality time together. Uh, it wouldn't work, would it? Um, quantity time is what you plan for. So um, prioritizing it putting it on your schedule, being with other people, the beginning of relationship. So there's a difference between affiliating and joining. A lot of people are going to be rooting for a team today. There's a big difference between rooting for a team and being on a team. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Big difference between rooting for a team and being on a team. And the biggest difference will come next year when the team you're rooting for today starts playing bad and you no longer tell anybody that you're rooting for that team. Right? So there's no ownership. Um, I talk about it sometimes as the difference between a glove. (laughs) And a a hand. (laughs) It's It's hard to draw with one of these digital things. Um, there's a difference between a glove and a hand. A glove goes where the body goes. A, a glove goes where the body goes. It's not organically connected to the body. There's no give and take. Um, gloves are discardable, right? There's a difference between affiliating and joining. And joining really means that you're in relationship and you're connected. We talked about the screw tape letters last week, so I thought it'd be fun to come back to them this week. Because the first time it's hard, you kind of you don't get what's going on. Because good is bad and, be, and bad is good because it's reversed, it's flipped. So you guys remember this from last week? So the perspective is, this is a letter um, to Wormwood um, from like his uncle, Screwtape, who's a big demon Wormwood's a little demon, and Wormwood is charged with being the tempter for this would-be Christian. Does that make sense? So when, when Screwtape says to Wormwood, the enemy, he really means God, right? Because God's the enemy to the tempter. So you, you got to think in reverse. But this, this is uh, C.S. Lewis. And this is from one of the Screwtape letters, and he says this. Um, we produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, my country, 
to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in a special relation, for that is what the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful that it's something special of, of its own. But the bear I can pull to pieces if I like, that, that I own, that's mine, that I can... Never mind, just had a picture come to mind. Um, we have a lot of teddy bears in our house, but they belong to the dogs, not to the kids. Um, so not, uh, the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful, but the bear that I can, I can pull to pieces if I like, that's truly mine. And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense, not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. There's, there's something consumeristic about how we can reduce Christianity down to my church, um, my needs, my God, my issues, my doubt, my frustration, my gripe, my whatever it is, my rights, really. And that everything now ends up having to bend towards me because I hold everything captive with what it owes me. God owes me something. You owe me something. That church, they owe me something and they fail a lot. And they're a bad church. You know, like what we mean by that is something really different than what church is when it's a body of Christ that's interconnected and interdependent. Um, One of the most interesting things that's happened the whole time Antioch's been in existence is we have this idea that Antioch doesn't create a ministry for Shepherd's House or we don't create a ministry for Habitat for Humanity. We try and get our people to go work in those places, to sit on those boards, to be involved with those organizations, right? We try and push people out to serve in the city. There already is a, an organization called Habitat for Humanity. We don't need an Antioch Habitat for Humanity. We, we need people to go serve, say, Habitat, right? Um, and at different times, people in this church, we have people on the board of Shepherd's House. We have people that are helping with the new women's uh, house that's being built. We have different people in this church that do different things. And so what's been interesting is I'll have people historically come back to me and say, how come Antioch doesn't do anything with fill in the blank? Um, one specific memory is uh, years and years and years ago, it was Habitat. And I said, the executive director of Habitat goes to Antioch. Well, so what? That means all the more that Antioch should have a habitat ministry. I'm like, you know, we do. That person is a member of the body of Antioch who is involved in that ministry. Antioch is ministering through that person. Antioch is, is ministering to needy people through those small groups or the empty nesters. The divorced family that said to me, Antioch didn't do anything. You had an elder and, and his wife walking with you all the way through that, that time. That was Antioch meeting your needs. 
There is no, there is no sticker or label. There are people, and if those people belong to this community, then this community, by extension, is helping you when those members of this community are helping you. Does that make sense? It would be weird to say, my hand is involved in something, but then to say, but it's really, it's really unfortunate that my body didn't get involved. Well, but my hand is, you see what I'm saying? And so one of the things we have to begin to do is realize that, that you and others are a part of Antioch when you go into this, this city. And what you do, we all benefit from that. If you were honored, we're all honored. If, if you hurt, then we all hurt too. There's a symmetry there. But we have to start thinking organically and not in terms of um, institutional categories. We want to be contributors, not consumers. Um, and we want to be people that, that actively participate rather than affiliate. Um, Karl Barth said this, Karl Barth was the theologian that most affected Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and he said, in the church of Jesus Christ, there can and should be no non-theologians. Meaning, um, we should all be thinking theologically about things um, and what God intends for, for the body of Christ. Not coming at it me uh, mechanistically or consumeristically or selfishly or individualistically. We should be thinking about these things theologically and then, and then let that drive our understanding and then how we go forward. All right, a couple other things real quick here. Um, uh, I'd love to help, but here's the equation. Um, here's you or others and here's me. And you know what? I have so many needs right now. I have so many needs right now that I, I, can't, even, I can't even satisfy all of them. I don't, I obviously can't focus on you because look, I've got my own financial needs. I've got my own issues. And so I don't have anything left over. The interesting thing about serving others is that we all hit that point where, where it's a tractor pull and we're bogged down. Um, I have done everything I can do with my, my finances to this moment. Hopefully to, tomorrow or next week, I can do more. But to this moment, I've done all I could do. If I could do more, I, I would have called in sick this morning and I would be doing more. Does that make sense? Um, I've done all I can do with my health. I've gone to the doctor's offices. I've got, I've got my surgery scheduled. Like I've got different things going on. I've done all I can do to this point, right? Even though I still have need. Ironically though, I have a phone. I have relationships. There's a whole lot I can do for what you need even though I can't do anything more and I'm bogged down and I'm waiting for things to evolve in my life, it doesn't mean I can't help you. Leroy Barber, a good friend of mine, he's been fundraising for years now to try and invest into leaders of color. I stood up last week and tried to say, hey, we need two plane tickets. This week I came uh, to a different conclusion. You know, he's trying to work with a group of people that are challenged, um, under-resourced. Under and for years... Uh, he's been trying to work his network or his own finances and his own plane tickets or whatever it is to try and help these people. He's tapped out. And I came to this conviction, Leroy doesn't need me to find two plane tickets. What Leroy needs is me to jump in with him and help him with what he needs. Um, so I picked up the phone this week and I started calling people I knew around the country that have resources 
And I, I sat down for 10 minutes, it only took me 10 minutes, and I banged out a one-sheet fundraising profile. And uh, in a week or two here, I'm gonna put it on a, one of those sites uh, on pure charity that's just kind of like a crowdsourcing thing to raise money for a good cause. Um, I didn't have the time. I've got a lot going on. Tamara was gone for a couple days. I was doing double duty. But I still was able to do that. And at the very least, what it does for Leroy by way of encouragement is, is astronomical. But I'm, I'm hoping that it'll bring in about $25,000, which will, in a, in a massive way, solve Leroy's problems. And I, I think we get into this, this thought process of like, I, I don't have anything to give. I'm out of money. Um, or you know what? I've got my own problems. I can't give. And then we go, but I care. And, and then we kind of move away. The, the fascinating thing is you don't have anything more left to deal with your own problems. But you got plenty left that would help me with my problems. Do you understand what I'm saying? And one of the ways you can deal with the depression of this or the funk, what I would call the funk of this, is that you, you take a little bit of time and help someone else with, with their issues. And when you serve them, there's this natural thing that comes along. It's like a, I've, it's been a long time since I've run, but I heard when you run, there's like a runner's high. It's like, it's like cocaine for the brain or something when you run, right? Or, right? Um, I just... Anyways, uh, so there's a natural byproduct to that exercise. When we serve other people, when we give to other people, God designed it that that's kind of proper functioning. There's a natural joy that comes when we, when we serve other people. Love produces joy. It's one of the beautiful things. Like nothing makes us feel more human than when we're loving other people. That's why selfishness is a sure way to tank your own self. Selfishness is self-defeating because love is what produces, naturally kind of brings about joy. So the fascinating thing is when we're stuck in a rut and we just say, time out for my own rut, let me go lend a hand to somebody else. Wow, that was fun. Look at how, how much happiness it brought them and, and their, like, their wife or their family. Like that really helped them out. I gave them a push. That was really cool. We come back to our own things and we go, you know what? <laughs> I've got some problems. I've always had problems. I'll probably always have problems. It's okay, God's in control. Like it changes our attitude. And so one of the best things we can do is we can asset map. If you think you have nothing to give or if you want to start giving and you're like, I don't know if I, I can do this, just asset map. Go home and make a bullet point list. What do I have that are assets? I have my family, I have my friends. I've, I'm healthy, I'm strong for my age. Um, I've got, I don't have money, but I have a lot of this resource uh, I, I'm a part of a network of people that loves to serve. What do you have? I have this skill. I, I have this thing I do really well. I have this hobby or this passion. I, I have whatever it might be. Because of my job, I do a lot of these things and that kicks out a lot of privilege with regard to who knows what. And you just look at that thing and you go, um, that's kind of an excess in my life. And I'm not utilizing my small group for serving me right now. What if I utilize my small group to serve someone else? What, what if I take an asset that I've got and leverage it for someone else right now that's praying to God desperately that somehow they would be alleviated in the situation that they're in and I can be the answer to someone's prayer? 
uh, Eugene Cho um, says it this way, you know, often we pray that God would move mountains and then, and then we come to realize that maybe we're that mountain and that God would move us. My friend Shane Claiborne says it this way, we pray often that, that God would move mountains and, and we're not willing to hear that he's telling us to pick up a shovel, right? And so um, we can meet other people's needs All right, real quickly, um, Ephesians 4.16. I'll just read these to you, but here's kind of more of the body. The body um, underneath the head that is Christ, Ephesians 4.16, for from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part means everyone sitting here. I don't care what age you are. Everyone sitting here has a part in the body of Christ that you play or that God intends for you to play. A lot of you think I'm broken or um, surely not me or not now, but, but God's vision for your life is that you'd have a part to play in the body. Um, let me turn back to 1 Corinthians 4.12. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14.12. This is talking about speaking in tongues and everyone's arguing about like these gifts, these spiritual gifts. And then Paul says something really interesting. He says, look, if you understood what a gift is for, a gift is for the body of Christ coming together and growing up. Okay, that's the, that's the function of somebody having a gift. And so Paul says this, he says, since you are eager for the gifts of the spirit, try rather to excel in those that build up the church. Not the ones that call attention to yourself, but, but pray to God and go, God, I really wish you would give me the gifts, the spiritual gifts that would allow me to serve the church in a way that it really actually uh, grows and builds itself up. Um, and by the way, you can pray for gifts, right? But God has a plan for you to be a part of his church. Now, now here's the interesting thing. My dad and I, we went to Yosemite in 99. We went hiking. I got two pictures real quick. First one's of my dad. And, uh, and we went up above Yosemite to Tuolumne Meadows, which is where all the watershed comes from for lower Yosemite, which is more familiar. And we hit it in an, uh, right after an El Nino year and the snow cap was, was late and melting off. It was really wet. And it was the, what the rangers said, the most mosquitoes they'd had in over a decade. And we walked into them like a wall. So um, I'll show you another picture, but it's not a good one because the picture that really showed the mosquitoes was a portrait picture and Kip said I couldn't, I couldn't do a portrait picture. So this is a landscape picture. It doesn't show the mosquitoes, but you'll get the idea. Um, so my dad and I were up in Tuolumne Meadows and we ran into this wall of mosquitoes and we were a day in. We stopped on what was, we didn't know at the time, but it was actually a crossroads of two um, bear highways and had about a dozen bears visit our camp that night and brush against our little two-man tent. So you're talking two, two feet away. And, and look, in, it, was, it was summer, so it was just a mesh, and look in our tent in the middle of the night, right? Um, and my dad was really, really scared, but I was strong for him. Um, <laughs> the other way around. Um, Ashlyn asked me yesterday, Ashlyn does these great, like she makes them up on her own uh, without any training, but she does these great like uh, 
like either or questions. Dad would, just yesterday driving around town, she asked me this question. Dad, would it hurt worse to be um, bit by a horse or to be bit by a bear? And I'm like, what's wrong with my seven-year-old? Um, and I said, well, Ashlyn, that's actually a category fallacy because the, the horse might bite you once, but if a bear bites you, you're not being bit, you're being mauled. <laughs> what's a hauled, Dad? No, 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 mauled. What's, what's mold? Why would a bear mold? No, mold. Dad, what is that? Well, see, the bear, if he starts to, to, to bite you, he's just going to rip you to shreds, Ashlyn. She's <laughs> like, oh, so that would hurt worse? You know, and I'm like, yeah. And uh, so being really close to bears is not fun. Um, being really close to mosquitoes, also not fun. Um, we decided not to hike out, but to hike over the, uh, we made a, a full day hike to cross over the saddle down into the lower valley where it was warm and drier to get away from the mosquitoes. But the fascinating thing about those mosquitoes that were so intense is you could think about nothing else. The same thing with the bears during the night. Like you could, I could think of nothing else. The mosquitoes could think of nothing else. Um, I think there's a lot of that going on in the church, that there's an anxiety in, in, that's, that's been brought about by modernity and, and uh, modern communications, that in our heads, it's buzzing. It's like when you have a ringing ear and you just can't get away with it. But modernity has brought about an anxiety. We're just so frenetic and so kind of lost in space that I think we're, we're so caught up in that. It's really hard to get out of that and to, to think rationally about different things. And so I, I want to just say to those of you that are just so um, locked up that, that God intends for us to figure that out somehow. And if you've got to call in other people, do it. If you've got to do spiritual disciplines, do it. If you've got to be radical, do it. But God's vision of your life is not to exist in such an anxious state that you can't even do any good for your own self, let alone for other people. God's ultimate plan for you is that you would be able to function in a way that you, that you bring about uh, truth and beauty and goodness in this world. And so if you need help, call for it. Um, the, the book that I wrote that's coming out in a month on creativity, it was out of this thought that everyone I meet is walking around with this deep, latent anxiety and that one of the ways we try and find our way out of that is to tap into our God-given creativity and imagination so that we can see a better way, that God has a different path for us than the one that's been shown us by TV or the people around us or the books we're reading or whatnot. And so if that's you today, um, there's different ways to get out of that. I'd pray that you'd be able to. Lastly, the body and forgiveness. Tamara is fond of saying, if all were known, all would be forgiven. Um, that if I walked a mile in your shoes, I'd be able to understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. And I wouldn't like them, but now it wouldn't be so heinous. It'd be like, I get it. If I'd grown up in your family, if I'd had those ex same, uh, same experiences, I might have responded the same way you did too. That you're human after all, just like I am. And it's not that you're... See, here's the, the hard thing with, with enemies or people that are being bad to you is we think that they're all bad. Does that make sense? Because what kind of person would treat me like this, right? 
you must be a bad person. I think the better way of saying it is, uh, you're a person just like me, and right now, I'm, I'm getting your bad slice. Um, but while you're treating me in a way that's really hurtful to me, uh, I can still imagine that you love your kids, that you probably stop on, on the, the road or the sidewalk to help someone that you see in need. You're not all bad, even though I'm experiencing badness from you. Does that make sense? If all were known, all would be forgiven. Colossians 3.15 says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Ephesians 4.25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are, we are all members of one body of Christ. It's really interesting. You can't walk down the communion aisle to share of the communion bread and the communion cup and hate somebody at the same time. The proximity of coming together toward Christ to receive forgiveness is something that cleanses us or ought to cleanse us and help us realize we can't hate or 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 not be willing to forgive or to bear with someone else's weaknesses, um, we, we can't do that because ultimately we're all part of one body of Christ and it doesn't make any sense for me to look at one part and say somehow I want to hack it to shreds because that would be to hurt the body of Christ that I belong to or that is my body. So as we come to take communion, what we're, one of the things that we're realizing is that as we're joined together and as we come here and realize that Christ is the one that gives us our nourishment, that grace and that forgiveness is the thing that allows us to keep growing and recovering uh, and somehow to attain the full measure of what it means to be Christ-like. That as we're doing that, we can't look at our, our neighbor or our brother and sister and hold on to a grudge. Those of us who are receiving forgiveness have to be willing to forgive. And when I say forgive, what I'm talking about are, are the people that are hard to forgive. There's no point in talking about forgiveness with the people that are easy to forgive. It's the people that you find it hard to forgive or can't forgive that when we come here, we realize we have to do some serious business and shed the tears to say, yes, Jesus. Uh, in laying hold of you, I'm willing to let go. I'm willing to let go of the grievance that I have against this person. Not to forget, not, not that it's gonna heal all the wounds, but I'm willing to forgive what has transpired between me and that person. I'm gonna let you redeem that part of my life, God. So I'm gonna pray for us. If you've never taken communion, um, it's okay to come forward and take communion. The, the bread represents the body of Christ that, that died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed, again, for the forgiveness of sins so that we who are far from God and in, in being forgiven could come close to God again like the prodigal son that returned to the father's house. And so even if you're still trying to figure out what this means, if you've received that forgiveness, if you want to receive that forgiveness, then I invite you to come forward and to partake of this. Just line up in the alleys and you can, uh, the aisles and you can cycle through. There's gluten-free on the edges. And as we do this, let this be a time when we're really truly centering our, our mind on the fact that um, our life is about being a part of a body 
that's attached to Jesus Christ who is the head and that it is a beautiful and glorious and loving thing that is far better than any other kind of self-centered or self-seeking life that we might be able to pursue apart from that. It's a beautiful thing that we worship today. Father, thank you for not leaving us as orphans. Thank you for attaching us to a family. Help us to accept the family and all its weaknesses. Help us to rejoice in its successes. And I pray that you'd give us the strength to meet each other's needs, to not be so myopic that we only see our own needs, but that we could somehow think communally, covenantally. And as we come to receive communion, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one that died and bled for the forgiveness of sins, that we could be brought back into a dynamic and intimate and close and joy-filled relationship with you. We celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.